Welcome to Gen Z Hoops, the Gen Z basketball coaching and sports business show. On this podcast, you'll learn from professional players, coaches, and executives from all over the world and see the court in a brand new way. And now, joining you courtside, your Gen Z host, John Hartafillis. Coach Smith, good morning. What's going on? Not much. How are you? How's everything on this beautiful uh, Monday morning? Things are things are going great. I mean, really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for, for taking the time, obviously, right after the season ended. And jumping jumping into the show, I mean, I'm just looking at all your, your career. I mean, you've, you've had so many different stops. You've done so many different things. I'm curious about maybe where it all began and kind of where maybe that passion for the game started to that really made you think that like coaching was what you wanted to do and really set you on the, on this journey that you've been on. Um, where did that kind of start? Was it was it in college when you were such a, a great college player? Was it shortly thereafter? Where, where, did this, where did that spark really come about? I think it was in high school. It kind of started, I got the opportunity to play early in my high school career as a sophomore on a really good team. And, and we had really good players that were older. They kind of showed you the ropes. It had always dabbled in many different sports at that point and, and decided just to focus on basketball and played golf on the side. That was more just fun with friends. But once I started doing that and, and being around, I got hurt both my sophomore and junior year and was out for the season, tore both ACLs in high school. So it was kind of nuts. But being on the sideline and being in practice every day and witnessing what the coaches that we had did on a day-to-day basis was just really fun. Then I started in the summers coaching our youth teams in our high school and going to different summer leagues and coaching them as a as a senior in high school. And I continued to do that through my college days. I would always come back and coach our high school team in a summer league, coach some younger kids at my high school in the summers. So third, fourth, fifth, sixth graders for two hours a day, every morning, Monday through Friday, it was awesome. And it allowed me to get in the gym and get working too. So it was like a, a two-pronged effect. I got, I got to, to coach and do what I love to do and also work out and stay in shape for the, for the next season. So I did that for four years and it was great. And at that point, I knew what I was going to do. I was going to try to play as long as I I could possibly play and then coach after. That's awesome to think that you have a plan. Many people don't, and, and they kind of limbo and thinking with other people though, they they, they know that their passions in basketball and they know that that's gonna that's gonna take them wherever they need to go in, in terms of following that passion. It's great that you know you had that coach experience because most people when they're playing college, they're just thinking about playing college or or the next level. They're not really thinking about about coaching, doing stuff like that, which I think is so cool. And, and I'm curious, maybe as 20-something-year-old coach, what it was like kind of just relate, being able to relate to the players so much, so much better that maybe an, an older coach wouldn't. And obviously that's something that as you go up in position and, and you get older, you you kind of lose maybe that that personal touch but what was it like maybe back then when you were doing that maybe in your late teens early 20s um coaching at, at, at you know so many different levels um while still playing i was lucky in the fact that a lot of the kids that i was coaching at that at that time who were in high school and junior high knew who i was knew that i was playing in college and had that instant respect factor that really helped but then the thing i tell people all the time is, is you got to be who you are you can't change who you are i laugh i have fun take it every day is i just want to smile and do what i love to do and i'm not a huge guy that's yelling scream i'm going to say some sarcastic remarks to try to make you you know smirk a little bit and, and get you to move on and, and let them know you really care about them and you want them to be as good as they can be at whatever they want to do but also they they know who you are they trust who you are and they know that you're doing it for the right purpose you know, if I tried to go and, and be like Kevin McHale, like I, I would fail miserably. If I tried to go and be Eric Spolstra, I'd be horrible. People would see right through me. So I, I think players are very sharp. Like they know who's talking to them and they can get a feel if it's from the heart or if it's something made up that you're just saying to 
to get their attention and they don't, they don't really need to listen to that stuff. So as long as you're who you are, I, I think people will respond to you. 100%. And that's so important to kind of to kind of remember it and keep in the front of your mind. I'm also then curious, though, like, so you have say this great career, Bethany, fifth in the all-time scoring list, right? Making a, a lot of threes in the process, right? So I'm curious to maybe once you graduate from there, what was that you wanted to do? But what did it look like in, in getting to that next level as a coach and, being, and going to St. Lawrence and doing all those things? What was maybe that first year like in testing those those collegiate coaching waters? Yeah, you don't really know what goes into it. Like, I thought I knew a little bit. We had some great assistant coaches when I was there. You know, Brian Murphy really taught me a lot about basketball. His dad was a legendary coach at Hamilton College, and now he's at Northeastern. And then Nate Hager came on after that. Uh, those were my junior and senior year coaches who really, along with Rob Clune, who was the head coach there, just did a great job with me and our team, really, of, of teaching us what to expect, what goes into it every day. But when you're on the other side for the first couple months, it's it's a lot. Ideally, I would have went to a place that had a big staff and I could have learned from them. But unfortunately, and fortunately, at St. Lawrence, I was the only full-time assistant as the GA. So, you know, you're doing recruiting, you're doing scheduling, you're doing everything with the players and making sure they're where they need to be. You're doing everything. So it's a little overwhelming, but once you get a feel for how things are done, how you're going to do it, build a relationship with the head coach. I didn't know Coach Downs at all. I mean, I, I drove nine hours to meet him for a weekend, hung out did an interview. He offered me the job when I left, took it, drove back, packed some stuff up and, and drove back to St. Lawrence. I mean, it was, that was more of a life-changing experience going from Pittsburgh and, and West Virginia to upstate New York, basically on the border of Canada, where my car would just stop running because it was too cold. I would just stop in the middle of the highway because my something with my exhaust wasn't open enough and I had no idea what was going on. And I'm walking to my car and my nose freezes. And that was more of a challenge than the coaching part. But it is fun uh, when you get there and you're just thrown into the fire and you just got to figure it all out. And, and the people that kind of build you up as far as your coaching acumen you, you kind of lean on those guys to you know teach you the way oh definitely and then being the only player hand in so many different things and wearing so many different hats I mean how much did that prepare you for just two to three years later being being a head coach of, of a team I mean, very rarely do you see someone in their mid-20s being offered the keys to a, a full college team so what did that look like in kind of making that next step to the head coaching level after maybe having all that experience as an assistant I mean, I think wearing a lot of hats helps. You know, I tell people all the time they want to be, I, I want to be a GA, but I only want to do it at the division one level. And I'm like, okay, well, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities to do things that you're not going to be able to do there. You're, you're not going to be able to coach. You're going to be doing some things that will prepare you, but it's not going to be what you think it is. Going the division three route is not as glamorous, but you really get your hand in everything. And uh, it helped me tremendously. I mean, we're you're taking classes too. Like, forget about that. Sometimes I remember meeting with Coach Downs the first week, and he was like, "Ah, you're here to coach basketball, not to go to class." So basketball comes first, class comes second. But I laughed, and it was uh, it was what I wanted. Like that was what I wanted to hear. But it, it definitely prepares you, and and being in that area prepared me for that year at SUNY Canton right away. You know, I didn't know what junior college was. I didn't. I mean, I, I had heard of it. I didn't know what went into it that some people went there to get their grades up or get an extra uh, year of basketball before they went somewhere else. And that was really all I thought it was. Getting there and thrown into the fire in September and basically this is your team and this is all you have. And, uh, you know, our best player, we pulled out of the intramural leagues and he was he ended up getting a scholarship to a Division two school. So, you know, it, it was fun. It was crazy. And uh, and I wasn't there very long. I, I knew right away that I wanted to get back to the academic Division three 
atmosphere. And I, and I did that fairly soon after the season ended. That definitely sounds like like a lot was going on there. And it's, it's funny to think about just maybe what, what, how many turns this this journey can kind of take you through. I'm then curious, of course, so you, you had all these other stops as an assistant or head coach in these other colleges. What made you get back into the G League? How did that even, how did that come up? What, what did that journey look like in, in kind of so, being someone that kind of wanted to stick in the college game and then obviously t- taking your talents to, to, well, at that time, the NBA D League, but kind of just this, this the, the NBA's development league that would soon just now grow into what it is now? Yeah, that was, I mean, a crazy story. Keystone College Division Three in uh, La Plume, PA. You know, we had, uh, still to this day, my buddy's the coach there. We had uh, wooden backboards on the side hoops. We had two glass hoops and, and four woods. It was great. I loved it there, but I, I come to the office one day in, in September and I got a message from Jimmy Pilas from the Rockets wanted to talk to me about their D-League team. And at first, I thought it was my friends messing around with me and, and making something up. And I had never, I mean, once you have a cell phone, you really don't check your office phone. So I would only check it like once a week. And somehow I checked it. I don't even know why. But I did a little research and it was the guy. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe, you know, we're scoring a lot of points. Maybe he's just interested in talking about how we're playing. Or we had a player at that point who was really good and and he ended up going to Germany and I'm thinking, Oh, maybe he wants to talk about Malcolm. So I don't know. I'm usually, I usually dig a little bit. So I start digging a little bit on Jimmy and, and finding out like, Oh, this guy does work for the rocks. Okay. I, I know some people that know him. All right. What, what do you think the deal is? And then I moved so quick from there. I, I called him back and he said, Hey, we want to interview for the, for the D league head coaching job. We think, we know what you're doing there fits what we're doing. They basically found our school through a statistical search and put in like what they value. And, and our school kept popping up uh, from threes and quick offense and, you know, limited mid-range shots and went for the interview. I did a couple phone interviews, went great, flew down on a Friday. We were practicing at the time. It was uh, October 17th-ish. Flew down on a Friday, did an interview in the morning, had to move practices around, sat on it during the weekend, got a call from Kevin McHale as the head coach of the Rockets at the time on a Sunday. And I hadn't heard anything yet. And he's like, oh man, it'd be great to meet you. Can't wait to see you. And I, I'm like, well, I think that's a pretty good sign. And then, you know, got the call the next day that they were going to offer me the job. And at that point, it's, you can't say no to something like that. I mean, I was single being able to coach at that level is something you don't really think about because it's not really an option, but then it happens so quick and you just say yes. And I got on a plane the next day. I love that story. Thinking about how Mori Ball kind of playing and playing Mori Ball at the college level kind of got you just you noticed that most most time people are applying for those jobs and to, and to get noticed based off the style you were running and obviously running it at a high level a college game. It's just so cool that you have a legend like Kevin McHale calling you up and being like, hey, we want you to come here because you're doing what we want you to do, what we want to do. Uh, that's that's so cool and, and so amazing to me. I'm curious, maybe like, what was it? Was that was it like a new thing at the time? Because now in the NBA, all you think about is no mid-range layups, threes. That's that's it. Was that like a kind of a foreign concept maybe back in like 2011, 2012, where it was kind of like risky to do so or what do you think it was it was kind of starting to to come into normalcy it was starting i i, I followed some legends chris finch was uh the head coach for the vipers followed by nick nurse and then me so i think those two guys are doing a little bit better in the quality of life with the the two head coaching jobs in the nba they have right now but so they were doing a lot of it we basically did it on steroids you know we went and took 46 threes a night. The league average at the time was like 23. And we just did it different. And we had a roster that was built to do that. You know, we played James Johnson at the five. Before there was small ball, Draymond Green and Golden State, like we were playing small. Our GM at the time would uh, come to games like, you can't play this lineup, this isn't basketball. 
I'm like, oh, we're only playing it for like 10 minutes a game. You know, it's the greatest lineup in the history of basketball at any level as far as offensive efficiency. And he's like, this isn't basketball. And here we are. Everyone's playing small ball fives. Everyone's searching for small ball fives. We were doing it with, with JJ. Kind of nuts how it all happened. You know, we had Troy Daniels, Chris Johnson, Isaiah Cannon, Robert Covington, Darius Morris, Malik Waynes. We had Tony Bishop, Gary Tall, and I can name all those guys. We just had really good players that fit like that style of play. So it was fun. It was great. It was uh, probably the most fun year I've ever had coaching just because it was so different and you're learning so much on a daily basis. Being around those guys who were not only great players, they were unbelievable people. And we would just laugh and learn and fun to just share that experience with them. My God, I mean, everyone kind of talks about maybe uh, stories like Andre Ingram, but Troy Daniels is the guy that comes to mind immediately when I think of just the, the shot he hit, obviously, in, in the playoffs, but even just before that, just kind of his his road to get to the league. Robert Covington's another guy that I thought was really cool because everyone kind of thinks of him now as like a mainstay, such a great defensive player, that, that kind of the ideal, maybe uh, small ball five. How many of those of those guys do you think, and, and when it comes to like the, the perfect situation, was that just so important for um, in the fact that all those guys were kind of just built for that, that system you guys were running, but then also so they, they, so many of them just had that. We were able to to kind of take that opportunity to get to the league. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I I think you know iron sharpens iron, right? So those guys all playing against each other every day in practice and then playing with each other, it, it did create a lot of buzz. I I got a lot of flack from other coaches in the league. It kept calling us the darlings of the D League. Everyone's writing articles about us. We we're like analytic dream. So every analytic writer in the world is writing articles about us. So I, I don't think the other coaches and other players in the league really liked us too much, but like it put eyes on us. So, you know, it put more eyes on our games to see our guys that were performing at a really high level and doing things that is the modern NBA, you know, way back then. So I do think it helped them just because we were really good and we had such a collection of talent. You know, did it help Troy being able to shoot 12 threes a night, get noticed? Probably, like probably the, I helped him. You know, some of those other guys, I mean, I think Cub just having the green light to, to fire him up from wherever, I think helped him. I, I know Billy didn't love his shot selection when he went there, but him being able to learn how to get those shots off uh, helped him. Uh, were they all great shots? No, we weren't looking for great shots. We were looking for quick, good shots. Could be better depending on what player takes them. So definitely helped, you know, it allowed James to show what he can do with the ball. And Pryor allowed him to play with the ball. He was a defensive wing who stood in the corner and we we're like no you're going to be in pick and roll you're going to get the ball you're going to run pick and roll you're going to screen pick and roll we're going to throw it to you and you're going to make plays for everybody because you're a, a ridiculously good athlete and a great passer and you know how to play so i think giving guys a platform to show what they can do you know, that team kind of that that's what it was it was a platform for those guys to prove to the world what they can do and i think they did it that, I mean, 100%. It's, it's so cool thinking about just the, the dynamic that's in the G League with that and how it's able to play out. I'm curious then that when you, when you went to Sioux Falls, did that did you kind of bring that that style with you? I mean, did it already kind of acclimate to the rest of the NBA to where everyone was kind of doing it? Well, what did maybe that that look like when you, when you went to Sioux Falls and, and now you're under uh, Pat Riley and, and, and the Miami Heat uh, culture, which is, which is you know, now that they have guys that are maybe doing that with Duncan Robinson and Bam Adebayo, like, what, what did that really look like for you in, in going to Miami? It was different, right? It was uh, it was the first time that, you know, when I got to Houston, they said, we don't care what you do defensively, just be the best offensive team in the league. And you you get to Sioux Falls in Miami, and they're like, well, you need to be defensive focused, and, you know, whatever time you have for offense, great. And uh, it, it was really good, you know, for me personally to be around that and learn how to be more efficient. Spend in RGV 85% of our time on offense, you know, you go to spending – 
20% of your time on offense in Miami and you're getting pretty much the same results and just figuring out ways to do it better. It only helped. And, and we really played to our, our personnel. And I think that's all you can do. If, if any coach wants to do what he wants to do and they don't have the personnel for it, it's probably not going to work. So being able to change and, and modify and allow guys to do what they do is the biggest thing, especially in the NBA D-League level, because your team changes all the time. And now with the transfer rule in college, it's the same thing. So you just got to be able to adapt put guys in the best position you can to help them succeed. But it, it, we were still shooting a lot of threes. I think we were still in the top three in pace and threes attempted every year I was there, except the first year and threes, just because we were built different. We were one of the best defensive teams in the league and we, we didn't play as crazy on offense. You know, we had guys who just got to the rim. So we just got to the rim and we got to the free throw line and we lived that way. But I, I think the big misconception about how we played is our first goal wasn't to shoot threes. It was to get to the rim. You know, we shot a lot of threes to open the rim up, but our first goal was to get to the rim, get to the free throw line. You know, the threes were secondary, but I think people look at it as like, oh man, that guy, do they just shoot a million threes and just hope they go in? It's like, no, but you can say that. It's great, but that's not how it is. No, great. It's great you know, you saying that because that is something that you, you do hear often, but it is just maybe just the, there, there is so much more to the style than just it looks like on surface value, just a, a high number of threes. There's, there's so much more that goes into it. It's just, it's incredible kind of just thinking about, about how maybe that, that style can just kind of evolve just in different stops, obviously with different personnel. You have to kind of acclimate it to who you have, not kind of acclimating them to what you're, what you used to be running. So it's great to think about how it, it, it going somewhere else, it, it kind of, the whole system kind of just evolves and, and, and it's better for it. Then kind of moving on to what we're doing now with, with your, with your role. Texas I'm curious maybe going back to the college game what that might have looked like for you maybe your your role there as uh, was, was a little bit different than, than just being than, than being the assistant, uh, assistant coach you had been in the college level before um being, being a, a director maybe what did that that whole uh, switch look like for you it was different for sure you know thankfully this with uh, the one good thing of COVID is they they made the rule that uh, people in my position can be on the court not necessarily coaching but be on the court so that made it you know, more enjoyable to be around a guy like Coach Smart and our staff, KT Turner, Cody Hatt, Neil Barry, all those guys are really good. And, and you learn so much. And our players were unbelievable. We just had really good players that wanted to learn, wanted to be better. So to be able to help in any way I could on the offensive end, just to try to be more efficient, to try to help guys improve different ways to improve different, different things to exploit um, and looking at it from a different lens, uh, you know, I think was great for all of us. Um, it was a great year. First time in you know, program history, won the Big 12 championship. Uh, first time Texas ever won Maui. It's a disappointing finish, but, you know, leading up to that point, it was probably one of the more decorated seasons in Texas basketball history for sure. Uh, it's so cool thinking about that and just and just obviously just the, the wealth of experience that you've had at all these different programs. I'm, I'm curious, maybe looking back on it, maybe when, when you first started, right? So you're coach, you're, you're still in college, you're, you're playing and coaching all these young kids. What's something that now, obviously, after being at all these stops, seeing basketball change so much in the last in the last 20 or so years, right, that you've been coaching, what would you kind of go back and, and tell your younger self about, okay, like like this is to get, kind of get him, to get a young coach, Devada Smith, maybe ahead of the curve or, or to get him prepared for, for what's to come? I'm probably one of the worst networkers in the world. I got a really core group of friends in the basketball world and, and we're kind of the outcast somewhat as like, we just want to hang out with each other. Like we, you know, we care about each other. We care about each other's families. We go to the final four and we rent an Airbnb and just hang out with each other. Like we don't like hang out with anybody else. We don't go do anything. We kind of just, we enjoy each other's company. We know it's a genuine, you know, love for each other which I think in basketball circles, you don't get, you get a lot of surface relationships. I'm not very big on surface relationships. I know that's what 
profession kind of is. So it's probably why I'm not great at it. I, I'd like to build some genuine relationships where I'm not getting asked like, oh, how's your team? How's the recruiting class? Like, you're going to forget what I said in two seconds when you walk to the next guy and ask the same question. So like, why don't you ask about my wife and my daughter and me and something that happened during the season that shows a little more personal touch. And that's what I try to do. The, the younger guys that really want to learn and you, know, you have to do the networking part. You got to do it. Got to meet people, but try to make it a genuine relationship, not a surface relationship. Like really get to know people, really, really know who cares about you. You find out who cares about you when you get fired. Uh, that's a that's an interesting one. Everyone will text you after you get a big win. You you look, you know, we beat Oklahoma State and I got 310 messages. You know, I get let go by the, by the Rockets. I think I had like seven you know, to seven people you trust the most. I, I love that. And that's definitely something that I'm going to have to listen back to and, and just think about in terms of obviously, because it's something that we, I, I think our users can relate to in their own lives and, and who and who really is there for you. Who are those seven? Because those 310 are always are, are going to be there for the big wins, but they're never going to show up for the losses. So it's it's super important to think of that. And that's, that's great advice for, for really anyone listening. And I'm, I'm going to take that myself. So, so coach, I mean, thank you so much for coming on the show and kind of just going through, through everything. I mean, they, they, but obviously both with, with the advice you gave at the end, but just the outline of your career path is just so interesting as to kind of how you got to where you are and all those different stops you've been so i mean thank you so much for coming on oh thanks for having me i really appreciate it you guys are doing great work and uh hopefully you get back on the court and save your basketball and get it done and and enjoy it so it's a fun time when you're uh you're at your age to really learn and, and figure out what you want to do and i think you're doing a great great job thanks for listening to gen z hoops Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe on Instagram, LinkedIn, and all major social media platforms at Gen Z Hoops. You can tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and every other podcast platform on the planet. Get ready for the next episode.